1: is Idle
0: Australians with James Matheson and Osha Ginsberg. Exploring
1: the bits you might have missed from Australian history and Australian culture.
0: Hello and welcome to Idle Australians. I'm Osha Ginsberg. That is James Matheson. Thank you so much for being here. It's a podcast that tries to hit the bits you might have missed from Australian history and Australian culture, and we are going through Australian history right now, Jimmy, of COVID-2021, and it's doing my head in. That's all I'm saying.
2: I think I've been all right with it recently, but I may have also gotten close to a tipping point. Yeah. I've found it difficult seeing all the hysteria and then also being in lockdown for a couple of months. Um, and homeschooling for an entire term. I, I was kind of all right with them. I got slightly disturbed when they have it to start stopping cancer screenings for critical care patients. That upset me a little bit. Then they euthanised a whole um, pound full of dogs and puppies because the council thought it was going to be a public health threat. So that shook me a little bit. <laughs> What, because they
0: didn't want people coming to the pound to rescue uh, these dogs? Well, no,
2: I mean, the, but the whole pound system is also predicated on people coming and picking up and taking away some of the animals and so they don't get overrun. And But, yeah, also they didn't want any community transmission, so they thought, what should we do here? What's the best, most ethical way we can keep things safe at this animal shelter? Oh, I don't know, what if we got rid of the animals? What, do you mean adopt them out? No, 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 shoot them. Shoot, shoot the animals at the animal shelter. That pushed me closer to the edge. And then they shut Golden Century Seafood Restaurant and it was very hard for me to stay balanced and stay um, a calm, cool...
0: Still breeze. <laughs> it texted me that day, and <laughs> when when I saw the screenshot you sent me, the Golden Century was closing. I felt like like the tourist who was walking towards the Twelve Apostles to kneel on one knee and propose to their fiance, and just hearing a rumbling, and then everyone running away from the cliffs, going one's just fallen over. Like I, I felt the earth shake, and go, hang on, wait, what? Golden Century is now. If I grew up in Brisbane, not everyone's from Sydney. Golden Century is this iconic Sydney Chinatown restaurant. It's got to have like 60 fish tanks that serve as the windows. And you basically point that barramundi there. 10 minutes later, it's on your plate.
2: Open till what? Three? Oh, at, le- at the very least. At the very least. three o'clock in the morning, you can stumble into the golden century and order probably one of Australia's best salt and pepper tofus. Of all time. And then sit down at these gigantic oversized round tables and across the hall you can see uh, a group of 12 men, one of whom is a Russian gangster sitting with <laughs> a, uh, a triad member, <laughs> sitting with a couple of heads of Sydney mafia, sitting with uh, a, a, a giant islander guy in a skirt and think, yeah, no, that makes sense. That, that, that makes total they sense. They also like the salt and pepper tofu. Right, right here at this moment. It is an absolute Sydney institution. And if that place, a place where people were queuing up, you know, most times on the weekend to get a table is struggling financially, then I can only imagine what the smaller businesses, those who are living month to month, the little hairdressers, the massage parlours, the cafes, um, the butcher shops must mm. be just up against the wall. Like they must just be screaming blue murder at what's yeah. happening here. It,
0: um, I mean, f- fuck the IPCC report. Like the golden century closing is the tipping point. That we all
2: really need. <laughs> I texted you this. I was more upset about the golden century closing than I was about the Taliban taking over Kabul. <laughs> I mean, that is probably disproportionate, but sometimes we have emotional reactions which don't correlate directly to the significance of the event, and that this was one of those things. Anyone who is listening who spent some hours in the early, early morning at Golden Century, after a gig, after a footy game, after a night out, would understand what I'm talking about. I think I had my 40th birthday there because my, my partner asked me, where do you want to eat? Where do you want to go for dinner for your 40th birthday? You can choose anywhere in Sydney. And I was like, let's go to that dingy Chinese restaurant that I've spent <laughs> uh, way too many hours at. But what's my point? My point is that, um, yeah, not many people are getting out of this. Not, I don't know how small traders are going to get out of this. I guess what makes
0: me smash my head, and you—you were rightly so. You're very wise, James. And you, you know, you rightly said, "Don't stop fucking looking at the numbers. Stop listening to the press conferences every morning. Just accept that they're going to go up or down, and it's beyond your power. Just do what's in your control." And and that's really all it is. I've kind of stopped looking. I just, you know, have seen, you know, the the cracks in the system start. To, you know the. The closure of all um, elective surgeries, for example, like that's a that's a flag that says, "Well, some modelling is suggesting that all these people need to be free because things are going to get not great." I'm not not worried, but I'm just trying to control the things that I can right mm-hmm. now, Jimmy. And I do. I'm every day grateful, but I think about what I would be like if I was in my like just before you met me. I was pretty much living. Well, just week to week. I didn't know what saving was. I was living week to week in my early 20s working in radio. If I was living paycheck to paycheck like I was then, I would be fucked. Uh, I was out of home. It was. I would, I would have nowhere to go. I would not have anywhere to stay. I'd, I, I'd be absolutely fucked.
2: And I really think there's millions of people in my city right now dealing with that. I, I know three businesses who have built something up, who have got a clientele, who have worked very hard, and this is just in my direct circle, just in my own little sphere, who two have closed and one isn't going to make it. And uh, I'm not in a hotspot. I am not in Fairfield. I'm not in Lakemba. We're not even in hotspot LJs. You know, we're in parts of Sydney that have had lesser restrictions. But you can't, like, to build a business to the point where it is – successful, has a good following, you can sort of start hiring people, that takes years, man. That takes years and that has just gone Yeah, in a matter of months. Yeah. You can get up at your press conferences and you can say that we're doing our best but the fact that the support hasn't been there on the scale it needs to be for these businesses.
0: You did mention one part about Golden Century that I used to absolutely love when you'd be sitting there – like, after a gig, say, you know, at the metro or the entertainment center, it's like 1:32 in the morning, and you look across and you see that giant table, and there's three Vietnamese dudes, a couple of Russians, someone from an Eastern European country you don't know, but geez, they've got a good track suit on, and they're all laughing about something, and you're pretty sure none of them can speak a common language. <laughs> but jeez, the, the lazy Susans chock full of damn fine food. That did make me start to think about late night feasts, and particularly late-night Chinese feasts. Now, not everyone can get to Golden Century, but most of us on the way between the pub and wherever we're going to next will pass some sort of fish and chip shop, some sort of van, some sort of hot box-related food vendor, and inside that hot box, particularly if you're in Victoria, and they certainly have migrated north, like most Victorians, a small... Beautifully packaged, deep-fried, pillow of assortment of, of of some sort of meats, the delicious, the tasty, the one-handed, the spicy, the savoury, the dim-sim.
2: The dimmy! Couple of dimmies, mate. The Australian institution that is the dimmy. And when we say the Australian institution, we actually mean it. I think a lot of people presume that because it has a name similar to a lot of the delicacies that we would have at the yum cha table, that it is, of course, imported from our Cantonese cousins. But no, the dim sim, would you believe, is not just an Australian invention, but is a Melbourne invention. Not only was it invented here, you'd be hard-pressed to finding a dim sim in the form that we know and love anywhere else in the world. And on a show like this, a show that honours and celebrates and pays tribute to the brilliant things and the great moments that have come from this wide brown land. Well, we thought it was very fitting to um, spend a bit of time delving deep into the inner gizzards of the dim sim itself. I mean, a lot of people don't even know that. A lot of people don't even realise that the dim sim belongs to us, that it is as Australian, as Lamingtons. The Dim Sim. The meaty fruit of our multicultural
0: society. Considered Western by the East and Eastern by the West, there is one thing we can all agree on. It's 100% Australian. And to take us through the incredible story of this culinary superstar, none other than the daughter of of the man who created it. Joining us on the line now uh, from Melbourne, you would have seen her, if you're old enough to remember Bert Newton's Good Morning Australia, you would have seen her visiting uh, Bert. She was a chef that worked with Bert quite a bit. She runs a business uh, that teaches people how to make dumplings. Her family has had generations of impact on Australian cooking, Australian culture. James Batherson, welcome to the show. We're very happy to have her here. Elizabeth Chong, thanks for being here.
1: Like everybody else, like half of Australia, I'm uh, sitting alone in my own home and and uh, not daring to, to put my face outside.
0: <laughs> but are you able to dial up a defo- food delivery app and order some delicious Dim Sims <laughs> to be delivered to your front door?
1: <laughs> oh, well, bit better than that, I can make my own, <laughs> which I have actually.
0: Oh, really? Yes. You've made them tonight?
1: Uh, no, not tonight, but I made them two weeks ago and they are in the freezer. Because I was going to have some friends over who um, who asked for something like that and I thought, oh, instead of me going out to buy lots of little bits and pieces, oh, I'll make some homemade dim sims for them. And so I did. And then, then lockdown came and um, they weren't allowed to visit me, so I put them all in the freezer. So they're still there.
2: What is the secret? I mean, we're cutting to the chase very, very early, but what is the secret to the perfect homemade?
1: Oh, the filling on everything. The filling and the pastry on the outside, I think it depends on who makes it, you know, what what you put in and who makes it. You've got to have a little bit of knowledge, even though I have to say there are an aberration, a very much loved aberration, an Australian aberration, which is only known in Australia, and particularly Victoria, certainly not known in the rest of the world. So for that reason, I think we should be proud of it. How did that
0: come to be? Because it's kind of loosely based on uh,
1: Shumai, right? Yeah, absolutely. Look, it's yeah, when you talk about the dim sim, there's no such thing. Dim sim is a dialect of, of cantonese and I that from where I come from southern cant southern china and we call that whole collection of what australians call yum cha we call dim sum but in in my dialect we call it dim sim and in that whole collection of maybe more than 100 200 different varieties there is a little flower pot shaped one called siu mai and that is the one that seems to have found its way with the very early immigrants who came over from China, settled in Australia, opened up little cafes, and they made that flower pot shaped silmay, but they made it bigger because traditionally it's tiny, it's little and dainty. And they made it for the Australian palette in Chinese little Chinese cafes in those early days, and they made their own skins, which were thicker, and they put whatever filling that they could afford to put in, and they became known as a dim sim, which is just meaning that it's just um, one variety of that whole dim sim collection. But what I assume was too much of a mouthful for Australians to remember anyway, but Dim Sim seems to have stayed, and um, <laughs> they don't know it anywhere else in the world. Before my father began the whole business of putting it out in the marketplace in 1942, it was already established in Victoria mainly, in our little Chinese restaurants. They were so loved, so popular. We as a family used to go and buy them by the dozens, you know, and go down picnicking or down to the beach holiday house. And we always had dim sims. Uh, We called them just dim sims and we loved them. And then in 1942, my father changed the concept of that and turned it into an icon and and mass produced and commercialised it. The story behind that is quite colourful actually. Yeah. Do you want to know about it?
0: If it says late at night. Elizabeth, and say, you know, Jimmy and I have been out for a few cheeky schooners, and it's been a long time since dinner, and we're wandering past a takeaway, and there's some dim sims there, <laughs> yes. And- yeah, we we shovel these delicious pieces of fried goodness into our faces. I'd love to know the history of of what I'm digesting.
1: Well, you're not the only one who does that. I mean, dim sums are very comforting things. I mean, I've grown up with them, good ones and bad ones, and I still love them. <laughs> Most Chinese, we all love them. It's a part. It's a part of the whole dim sum range, which re- really translates as touch the heart. You know, we love them. Anyway. In 1942, that was during World War Two, my father... William Wing Young. He was an entrepreneurial businessman. He, he was already a very successful man. He had Victoria Market's biggest wholesale fruit business and various other things. But he was always looking for for different things to do um, business-wise. And he always, and he had a, a very generous spirit in which he was concerned about the community. And there were a lot of elderly Chinese men who used to come to him for advice and many of them were too old they were kind of like left over from the gold rush days didn't make it back to China you know because they were not successful they might have lost all their money or whatever but they couldn't find any work and they'd come to my dad to ask for jobs and my father thought well they couldn't do anything heavy and so (laughs) he He had this great idea to combine a bit of philanthropy with business acumen. And he could see that this dim sim that was being sold and being loved was loved so much everywhere. Well, every every time you went to a Chinese restaurant, you know, you'd you'd buy dim sims and take them away in a little brown paper bag. So my father thought, now, if he could produce that dim sim in his factory... These Chinese men could make a living by selling them into, in those days, well, we still have some, you know, the caravans that used to, they'd go to the races and to the football. Oh, yeah. Yeah, And actually out to Essendon Airport to watch the planes coming in, they used to caravan, people used to go and sightsee for the planes. And my dad thought, well, these men could earn a decent living selling these dim sims, if he could make enough for them to sell. So he started off. My mum, one of them, was uh, just hand make these dim sims in his factory. They'd sit down with a mound of a filling. It was during the war years, and we had—you're you too young to know—we had coupons to buy clothing and food, and only so many coupons for food, for the meat. And dims and the little silmay is mainly meat, mainly pork with a little bit of prawn. My father said, well, that's very expensive. That won't do for an Australian takeaway. And uh, he applied for extra meat because these dim sums were also going to be sold or given to the munitions factories around to help the war effort. And for that reason, my father in his business was given extra coupons for more meat for his business. And so he, he made this, uh, well, he sort of, I suppose, created a, a new recipe for the filling. I think it was pork and we used to use veal in those days, pork and veal, but then with the shortage of meat, he had to make probably say 50% meat and the other fifty percent was made up with cabbage, English cabbage, ordinary cabbage, and celery. And and so mum and aunties and other Chinese women he could get would sit down all day and make these dim sims for these elderly Chinese men so that they could sell them and make a living. One day my my eldest brother had joined the business, he'd just left school, I think it's nineteen forty two then. Tom was given the job of delivering Boxes of these Tim Sims to most of the men. So the men, most of them lived in Cheltenham. And on his way to Cheltenham, Tom had to go through Alec, which is a popular fishing, little fishing spot. And he thought he might just call in and say hello to his mate who owned a fish and chip shop there. All the fish and chip shops were owned by Greek men, Greek people in those early days. Every fish and chip shop was greek owned tom called in to say hello to joe he said hey joe it's fine day let's go out fishing for a while so they went out in joe's little boat fishing and when they got back tom said oh dear, i've still got this box of Jim sims that to deliver a bit late now and he took them back to joe's place. He said, let's have them for lunch so he gave them to joe and joe said what do i do with them and tom says well we always steam them he said, what's a steamer? Well, I don't know how to steam them. And so being a fish and chip shop, he dropped them in his little cool. deep fryer. <laughs> and they, they came out fried dim sims, the first fried dim sims in the world, I think. But they thought they're not bad, fried. And then next time, uh, Tom said, oh, well, I'll, I'll bring a steamer along and, you know, they should be steamed. Anyway, um, before he did that, Joe rang Tom up and he said, they were a hit. He said, I gave them to my friends, and they all have fish and chip shops. And he said, they all want them. So bring some more boxes over. And before long, every fish and chip shop in Melbourne and Victoria, I think, out of Melbourne, was selling these dim sims, fried or steamed. Tom was supplying them with steamers now. And um, they became a part. Of the their whole menu, such a part that I don't think anybody ever bought fish and chips without buying dimpsons as well. <laughs> and um, my father could see that this was getting beyond being handmade by different Chinese work- women. And he thought, well… In England, he said that he knew you'd heard of a machine that made sausage rolls. He said that's similar to a dim sim when you think about it, like a, a pastry casing with a, with a meat filling. And so he went across and he made some inquiries. He went to London and he researched it a bit, and he found a German engineer who um, who invented a dim sim machine, the first in in the world actually, the first dim sim machine and it it made the pastry and it made the fillings they couldn't make the shape and the women were still (laughs) employed to fill the little pastry squares and then before long they were being sold in supermarkets and everywhere and a bit different from the Silmay, of course they're not as not as delicate <laughs> they had to withstand freezing they had to stand cartage. they had to stand delivery withstand all that so it made well I suppose it was a competition to the 420 pie which was about the only sort of takeaway snack we had apart from fish and chips and then Dim Sims joined that. And so it's very much a part of the Australian takeaway scene now. I I believe Victorians eat 9 million of them a week. What?
2: 9 million dimmies a week?
1: Yeah, well, look, I I can't vouch for it, but a very famous uh, well-known journalist has given me that number.
2: You said earlier on that uh, they are, in a sense, an aberration um, what do you know? Your traditional Chinese cuisine aficionados make of this fried delicacy that we've come to know and love?
1: I think I think we accept that as just a, a um, an Australian snack. <laughs> no, I think we're all, all quite proud of that fact because it's Chinese, you know, even though um, it's changed its character a bit. I had a call from um, a journalist in Hong Kong who'd even heard about it and wanted the story in Hong Kong, and um, they, they think it's wonderful, you know, that Australians have embraced the dim sim as their own in a way. I mean, it's well, it's Australian famous, isn't it?
0: I guess what I love about it is that your your father identified that, you know, there was enough of the Australian palate was brave enough to try this new flavour, but, like, eh, it's a little bit small, and that he was willing to yeah. To alter what was probably quite a traditional recipe that otherwise he never would have done that.
1: But they were already embracing that dim sum f- before Dad commercialised it. They already liked it. They, Chinese restaurants, much f- fewer in those days, were still very much accepted as a part of the, the Australian eating scene, you know, they, they yeah. I think as early as the 30s there were Chinese restaurants around because I was in Australia from 1934 as a baby. But I, uh, as I grew up, I, I, Chinese cafes were, were sort of everywhere. You know, they were in every country town. And so Australians... Have, uh, embrace Chinese food immediately, I think. And, and of course, they were introduced to the more popular Chinese foods in those days, they, not, you know, not, not exotic food. I mean, it's, it's pretty homely that, that they're still made to eat.
0: <laughs> As you mentioned, it's that one it, – the direct competition of the 4 and 20 pie, it's the one-handed kind of hearty fried – kind of comfort food that you can eat while holding a beverage in the other hand.
1: Exactly, exactly. I mean, there are other, other dim sum dishes that they wouldn't, like chicken's feet, for instance. Australians wouldn't embrace those as much as Chinese do or tripe, those more exotic things, you know. Are, but that little dim sum is just a, a bit of a comfort thing, isn't it? It's, and, and, the, and the chicken roll, my father was also called the chicken roll king. The chicken roll king and the dim sim king and his uh, brand name was wing lee and uh it, it, it was very famous because he, he, he began that whole business and then uh when my father's business went on to the stock market my father sort of lost the family business and uh i think i think probably chico took over chick the chicken roll business and i think marathons took over the dim sim business but my father was the. Um, without him, it would never have started. It was his idea to commercialise it for the, for all of Australia.
2: Wait, is the, is the chicken roll, the chicko roll?
1: Yeah, that came after us. Ours was called. Um, my father's was called Wingley Chicken Chop Suey Roll.
2: In, in essence, are you telling me your father invented the dimmy and the chicko roll?
1: Yes, the chicko. Not don't say chico, To me, that's a dirty word. <laughs> <laughs> no, there was a copy. And I think that came, I think probably, oh, I don't know, um, maybe 20 years after my father began. The, the, the chicken, Wingley's chicken rolls were famous everywhere. They were just called the Wingley chicken rolls uh, or just chicken rolls. No, but he didn't have any competition. There was Nobody else was making them at all. Since then, so many other people have... Claimed, you know, that they've started it, but Chico was the an Australian company who uh, who knew how to market. You know, they marketed it wow. as a sexy thing. You know, with the the, the girl with the shorts. By a motorbike, I think, wasn't it? So
0: growing up, you were – well, let me do the sums here. You said you were quite young, came to Australia, so you would have been an, a, a teenager when this was all kicking off. How quickly did, did – Oh,
1: older than that. Was, now, wait a minute. Now, you know, I'm 90 now. I can't believe how it happened, but I am 90. When I came over in 1934, I was three. 1942 was when my dad – launched the wholesale business of dim sims and chicken rolls. So, 42, I, I, I would have been 11.
2: And I imagine from your perspective, you, you talked about, you know, your mum rolling the actual dim sims herself. There was always probably cooking in the home. And from there, was that where you learnt your cooking and then realised <laughs> that this is what you wanted to oh, do? No.
1: no, not not at all. My mother like my father was um an unlearned person in china they they came from peasant stock you know from the country from the villages and uh, they only knew what hard work was i was brought up without any hardships so so no i just saw my mother always as a as a really hard working person she was always in my father's right hand he couldn't have got where he did without my mother doing the the hard yards with him that was something I just accepted as their background, and I had a totally Australian background. I was three when I came, and I don't even remember learning to speak English. It was just natural. It just came because I you know I was yeah. only three. and that time, I, I think it was the big Depression, but I don't remember ever sort of living where my parents had to had to um endure poverty I don't remember that at all we always seem to have good food and I, I never ever thought that we were poor I, I, I as a child you don't think about those things you just accept what you're given and um, as my father prospered of course he gave everything to um, you know to giving the best to his children and so I, I have to say that I must have had a privileged life my cooking career was an accident <laughs> it wasn't because I saw my mum cooking a lot I think later on, um, her cooking at home uh, influenced my style of cooking, but it wasn't because she was working in the factory with Dad at times, no... When I was at school, I I had improbable aspirations to be all sorts of things, like um, I wanted to be an opera singer, I wanted to be a concert pianist, I wanted to be a journalist, I wanted to be all sorts of things. I never thought I'd end up my life around a walk and and teaching cooking, but um, maybe that heritage was so strong, it was sort of set for me as a destiny. It was... Oh, it's quite a story. I'm writing my memoirs now, and I'm going back.
0: All right, I'm
1: going back to how it all happened.
0: Do you ever, when you're out, like when lockdown, obviously, when you're out of lockdown, yes. when you're uh, able to move freely around the streets, do you ever swing past a takeaway that's got a dim sim and just order one and just? give it a taste test to see how, oh, yes. how things have
1: – Oh, yes. Yeah? Yeah, but I can see by the look of it that it's not worth going for sometimes. But <laughs> if I go to a, a nice Chinese restaurant or a little, ch- a little cafe that looks interesting, I will always go and um, and ask for – to start just a few dim sims to see what they're like. And some of them are really very nice. You know, if it's a home cook – if the person who owns the restaurant, if they make them – and they're proud of their restaurant. They can make a real, really lovely, you know, a really lovely dim sum. But it's, nowadays, in, in in Australia, you know, you can best quality meat, beautiful pork mixed with with fresh prawns and water chestnuts and shiitake mushrooms and and. Pretty nice stuff. And then um, the, the little little uh, wraplings, wrap the little pastries now, nobody makes them. My father's restaurant, he had three chefs making those pastries, but now they're all made in restaurants themselves. If they make their own dim sims, they buy those little, we call them wrappers, you know, the little, little squares mm-hmm. from the, 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 the yeah. Asian supermarkets because it's a huge job making that pastry.
0: Technical question here, Elizabeth, how long... As you know the woman whose father invented the dim sim, how long can you leave a dim sim in a hot box and have it still be okay to eat?
1: Ah. Oh. Like you bought it from a, you bought it from somewhere, you mean, and you and and they put it in the no, takeaway. No, just
0: like when you get there to the takeaway shop and it's well after midnight, and you have a look I at know, it, okay. and you ask them how long.
1: Well, as long as as long as a, a pie or a pizza would last, I guess the same. But if I put it in the fridge, if I didn't eat it, then it'd be all right for a couple of days. It's been in the fridge. It's already cooked meat, after all. Yeah, fair call. Yeah.
2: <laughs> cool. We've all been there. We've all been there.
1: Dim sum means touch your heart. Oh, there you go. So we go to eat these little delicacies that touch your heart.
2: They certainly have touched our hearts, as have uh, dim sims across the nation.
1: But if you went to China and you um, said, tell me where's a yum cha place, they probably wouldn't know what you're talking about. If you have to say dim sum.
2: Mm. And you shouldn't, certainly wouldn't be uh, trying to order a dim sim. Over there? No, no, no. <laughs> it's never too late for global domination. I think. Um, and if you're still getting a percentage, we're happy to help out pushing the message as we take oh, it around I've the world.
1: I've travelled a fair bit, and I've never seen fish and chip shops like we have them in Australia. You know, along with the fish and shop shops, fish and chip shops, we've got dim sims with
0: them. The market's wide open. Then Elizabeth, 90s, not too late to start.
1: <laughs> no, well, anyway, it's it's <laughs> it's Australian. And it's Chinese, and I am both, so I'm proud of
0: it. Is 90 too late to start an import-export business, do you think, No, not at
2: all. Absolutely not. No, I'd say um, you can probably get certain concessions at 90. Yeah. Um, So I'd get into it. And when you're as sharp as she is. man. I'd be stepping it up. Yeah, why not? Go for it. I, I, I'm always constantly surprised by the sharpness of um, the elderly Asian community. Um, they seem to just have a level of stamina, of strength, of sharpness, of wit that um, my uh, my grandparents kind of sort of didn't have. Although my, my dad's mum is... Um, She's Burmese, so she was whippet smart into her late 90s. Yeah. Um, she definitely had that streak in her. But, yeah, I'm, I don't think I'm alone in that observation. My wife, Audrey, she's, uh, her
0: you know, mum's Chinese Fijian, and between her mum and her mum's mum, like, th- we're talking people, like, I'm not going to say these ladies' ages, but, yeah, no one's slowing down and no one's got any kind of, there's, it's, there's never stopping. You know, it's just a—it's an express joint. There used oh, to be God.
2: that uh, Mahjong joint across from uh, oh, our friend yeah. Mel's place yeah. in Surrey Hills. I remember and that. And there would be older Chinese blokes stumbling out of there at like 1 or 2 in the morning after playing Mahjong for about 7 or 9 hours straight, <laughs> half-smoking cigarettes, <laughs> rail thin but, but, but still chirpy Active, they'd worked for probably about eight hours that day. Then they smashed about nine hours of mahjong out, laughing, in great <laughs> form, in great spirits. Late seventies looked like they could go for another twenty or thirty years. Easily. I am <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm envious. I want some of that. I, I
0: do. I want some of that. I'm going to try. I'm going to try and get a bit further, uh, a bit older. Uh, I'm doing my part to try and get a few more years on, a few more runs on the board, Jimmy. I did go and have my my jab. I got my my Pfizer jab the other day. It's okay, it was an interesting
2: experience. Good on you, doing yeah. it for your community. Part of the 6 million New South Washington have got their first jab and getting our way to the 70%, 80% where we need to be for something other to happen, where we can get haircuts. We can get haircuts <laughs> at 80%. I won't lie to you. I haven't got the jab. I'm very close, but I'm just I'm, – I understand the importance of it. I understand the, the need. Just I'm, I just am emotionally not over the hill. That's okay. Um, it's 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 not that I'm vaccine hesitant. I'm not an anti vaxxer I'm just cautious and indecisive and a little bit recalcitrant and resistant to authority. So that combination has made me, you know, just it's a magic triad. It's a it's, and
0: you know your time and your choices are your time and your choices, Jimin. You'll be all right. You know you're you're a smart man, and you'll yeah
2: you'll be fine. And, and, but look, I want there. There's part of me that's like, ah. Oh, and here's the great paradox: like, a part of me is like, I just don't want to put that shit in me. But then I go, dude, you've eaten like the hot dogs at and bought like rack off a guy in a Mitsubishi Sigma in the car park of a Caltex. And you're worried about like putting that in your body. I think there's. I think I've crushed up pills that I've found on the floor of portaloos at festivals and put them in my face, and yet I'm a little bit concerned about the contents of, of, of a scientifically approved vaccine. Yes, but we're all a mix of contradictions and paradoxes and. <laughs> Incongruities, is that a word? So I guess I'll come around eventually. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I know exactly what you're saying. Anyway, book me in. <laughs> it's true. Put it in me. Get it in me. <laughs> it's true though. Oh my
0: arm was a bit sore, and that was about it. I I bet it affects people and different people in in, in different ways, but
2: I don't know, man. No, and that's my appeal to Australians who are reluctant. You've put heaps worse shit in your body (laughs) for a lot longer than this. So just pucker up. Get it done. Let's get out of this. Fucking clusterfuck as soon as we can. Please. And plus,
0: James, I love you and I don't want you to get lungs full of pus. I don't. I, that would hurt me greatly if, if you got sick. <laughs> oh,
2: from the from the rona? From
0: the actual virus, yes. Oh, yes.
2: Oh, yeah, there is that. That, that pus, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh. I'm more concerned with getting a haircut. But not downplaying the seriousness of it all, but... Um, it would be nice oh, to go to the, you know, footy or, you know. Oh,
0: God. Do you remember going to a show and like all well, this talk of dimpsons and going to gigs, like do you remember going to a gig and just like maybe just you and one other friend and you're in a room of a thousand people and you you come out of it with other people's sweat and other people's cologne on your body and random bits of spit in your hair and, you know, just covered in other people's bodily
2: fluids. Do you remember that? That's over. That's over. That's never happening again. Um, I'm afraid it'll all that. be partitioned from now on. I miss that. Social distancing gigs. You that, go um, if you're in a
0: hazmat I, suit. I'm also really quite old and unless the gig is at around two in the afternoon, I probably don't want to go.
2: <laughs> My back hurts thinking about it. My back hurts like thinking about 45 minutes standing up watching anything. <laughs>
0: Primus are reforming and bucket heads on guitar?
2: Nah. No, tonight? Still, like, yeah, 10 o'clock? 10, song, 10 o'clock? Like, 10 oh, o'clock? My back hurts.
0: 10 o'clock for the support band? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Survivor finishes an hour before that. <laughs> Might
2: be a slap. Kids, go and get your jabs.
0: Do it for your country. Give yourself a dim sim as a reward. Amen. Audio production of this episode was by the amazing Daryl and Thank you, Bree Steele, for finding the daughter of the man that created the Dim Sim. Thank you for tracking down Elizabeth Chong. Thank you for listening. This is Idle Australians. If you need us, idolaustralians at gmail.com. Take care of yourself, Jimmy. Happy homeschools. I'd say we're rounding the final corner, but I don't know what
2: fucking corner we're on at this point. It's probably a, yep, the light at the end of the tunnel, mate. Then what is it? Uh, probably a gas light on the hill or something. <laughs> I don't know. Some nonsense. Take care, Australia. (laughs) Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.